Hello, welcome to VR Roundtable, episode 113. My name is Gary and uh, joining me is Anthony, Steve and Chris, as always, usual. I think there might have been a slight delay. I think I had a hiccup just at the integral moment when I needed to start the show then, unfortunately. But um, we're also joined by a very special guest today, uh, Blake J. Harris, author of Console Wars. And he's here to talk about his latest book, The History of the Future, which we're all incredibly excited to talk about. Um, Blake, how are you this week? I'm great. Thanks so much, guys, for having me on. Uh, on short notice, the book comes out in two days, which is crazy. Um, and I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, we're looking forward to talking about this. Um, let's quickly go around everybody else before we get into the show anyway. Uh, Steve, how are you this week? I am doing good. Since we did our last episode, um, I left Sunday when we recorded last. I hopped on a plane to Ireland. I did a whole week's worth of work in Ireland and came back late yesterday. And in, intertwined with all of that, I was uh, talking to Blake and, and coordinated to get him here on the show. So uh, I've had a very, very, very busy week. Um, but I have whiskey in hand. We have a, a good uh, guest and I look forward to this show. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, Chris, how are you this week? I'm doing great. Yeah. I mean, this is just so exciting for me. You know, Palmer Lucky's been like my idol since I was a kid in high school, which is weird. You know, I'm I'm the younger person on the show, if you can tell. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, I, I interviewed him in 2013 when I went to some really weird hole in the wall convention about like <laughs> health and gaming. And I, I didn't know what I was doing. I was young and I was like, is the riff coming out? I don't know, you know, stuff like that. So it's it's going to be exciting to kind of reminisce about the good old days of Blake here. Yeah, we'll get into all of that. Uh, Anthony, how are you this week? I'm doing good. Everything's uh, great. Excellent same stuff. Old, same old. Okay, well, uh, I suppose we can get straight into it because we do want, we've got Blake for uh, sort of an hour and a half, I think, uh, roughly around that time anyway, um, which is fantastic for him to join us on VR Roundtable. Thank you as well to everybody joining us in chat. So feel free to ask any questions as well. Um, but I suppose, Blake, let's get into it. So um, The History of the Future, a book that you've got coming out. Why don't you just uh, give us like a brief overview of what you've done, your writing and that kind of stuff, and uh, we'll take it from there. Sure. So I'll give you some background, how I got started on the book and what the process was like. Feel free to uh, ask follow-ups or direct me if I'm taking too long or tangenting too much. But so I wrote my first book is Console Wars. It's a behind the scenes look at the battle between Sega and Nintendo in the early 90s. And I that came out in May 2014. And I remember talking to my literary manager right before it came out and saying to him that it was kind of sad that I would never write a book as good as Console Wars. And he said, no, no, no you'll keep getting better at writing with each book. And I said, yeah, no, I hope so. But I never thought I would find another book uh, with you know, interesting technology story, larger than life characters, intersection with entertainment, education, all these pop culture, regular culture things. Um, and I guess it remains to be seen whether this book accomplishes that. But a few months after I had that conversation and after Council Wars came out, I was at E3 and uh, tried Oculus's DK2. It was my first uh, modern consumer VR experience and I was blown away. And I really became very interested in writing a book like this. But as anyone who read Council Wars knows or is familiar with my writing, I really like to tell um, intimate character-driven stories. So for me to tell this book the way I wanted to tell it, it really would rely on access to the, the core players at Oculus or any other part of the VR industry that I wanted to write about. So I then spent 
I think it turned out to be about 14 months of trying to uh, get access with Oculus and Facebook. And fortunately, Palmer Lucky um, was a fan of Console Wars, so that helped get my foot in the door. And I remember the first time I was introduced to Palmer, he said something that I thought was pretty mature. You know, I didn't really know him that well. I just knew he was very young. And he said that, um, you know, at that point, 2014, right after they had sold to Facebook for nearly $3 million, uh, he said that, you know, despite all the excitement and the acquisition, he felt that they hadn't accomplished anything yet until they came up with the first product successfully. So he felt like there was no point in, you know, participating in a book. And I thought that was pretty mature, but he also said that he was open to having his mind changed because he was a fan of console wars. And so we spoke, and like I said, it took a little over a year to get that access, but starting in February of 2016, so it was like a month, a little a month and a half before CV1 actually came, uh, you know, officially launched, or at least was supposed to launch, uh, I guess it technically did. Um, you know, since then, for the past three years, I've been in very close contact with several of the people at Oculus. At some point along the way, as you might have heard, my access to Oculus and Facebook came to an abrupt halt, and I'm sure we can get into that later. But it was just super fascinating for me to uh, really spend so many hours talking to these people and getting a sense of how Oculus started, the ups and downs of the company, and you know, um, and, and just looking at this resurrection of modern VR um, through their eyes. And you know, I'll be the first to admit that Oculus did not single-handedly do everything with VR in these past seven years, uh, a lot you know, a lot of other people were involved in academia, um, at Valve, at Sony, and all these companies. But I do think that looking at the story through Oculus gives us a pretty interesting prism into what the story was like. And I do think that they, that if not for Oculus, we would not be where we are today. You, you're mentioning other uh, players outside of Oculus there. Uh, and I know in the book, in, um, at least in some of the preview chapters you sent us, that um, there is sort of some setting the stage with uh, Playful Corp and CCP and, and several, several people from out, or several groups from outside of Oculus. How did um, you go about getting, uh, I guess, set up with that information? Did that come through your, 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 your being privy to Oculus um, in, in your networks there? Or, or did that come sort of organically through through your process? Because uh, I guess from what I've seen, that there's while this may center on Oculus and Facebook, there's there seems to be a fair amount of um, of, of non Oculus uh, community involved sure. here. Yeah, well, you know, one of the really fascinating things about Oculus and this iteration of virtual reality um, that probably some someone like my mom or my brother who you know, doesn't really follow tech, but likes a good story, wouldn't really fully understand is that, you know, when you think of a VR headset, you think of the customer being the everyday consumer. And ultimately, that's the goal of Oculus and all these places. But but really, with, with a dev kit and with DK1 and DK2, the, the, the customer was the developer. So I felt like it was very important to see the story from um, a few different developer perspectives. And in the case of Playful, uh, eventually launching Lucky's Tale and CCP with EVR and then eValkyrie, you know, it was a um, a nice way that, you know, I knew would intersect with the end of it, or at least part of the end of the narrative. Um, and, and I think it was really helpful. I, there's, as I mentioned earlier, I did my first book, Console Wars, and it is largely about the Sega side of the Sega Nintendo battle, but you also see Nintendo. But I wouldn't necessarily call it a regret, but if I were to do it over, I would have loved to 
see that, that story too from the perspective of developers. And developers weren't even their core customers, but I would have loved to get a little bit more into Acclaim or Capcom or any of that stuff. And so I thought that this would be a unique opportunity. That, um, and particularly because of, I think, like the financial component, like CCP what is a pretty big sized uh, developer and Playful was a startup developer and nobody could deny that at least the team at CCP and Paul Bettner's team at Playful, they all had the passion for VR. That was never in question. It was more just a matter of, is this a viable thing to do? Um, you know, Playful only continues to exist if they make money. And CCP, as we know, their VR division only continues to exist if they make money, and it doesn't anymore. So looking at this just from a different, you know, I think that 95 plus percent of people try a DK1 or whatever anyone's first modern VR experience was and goes, oh my God, that was so cool. But 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 coolness alone is not enough to um, warrant an investment. And without that investment, I don't think we move forward. So seeing, just looking at that from the business side was important to me. And I did want to pick CCP and Playful because they had launch titles for the Rift. And then also um, I, I tried to get into some other developers that were doing early things like Justin Moravitz who did Proton Pulse and uh, the guys at Alchemy Labs and some of the other people that um, we probably associate with the early days, the golden days of VR. Yeah, the um, the interesting thing for me as well, um, Blake, is when I'm reading all of these things is like the the, the few chapters that you sent is. Um, thank you for doing that, by the way, and because I really enjoyed reading them. But it, it's like the enthusiasm these people had, like the early developers back in VR. Obviously, they had enthusiasm in order to 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 get this, but. I think we get a little bit disillusioned in the VR community where we see developers bringing out these games and there's a certain extent where we feel like, you know, they don't really care about VR or the future of VR. They're trying to make a quick book or something like this. Obviously, that's not true because there's not really a great deal of money in VR at the moment due to the, the install base. Um, but reading the book and the few chapters that we have read, um, that really, you know, it's so it's sort of inspiring to see the the people from Cloudhead, uh, CCP, and their genuine enthusiasm for this uh, this technology. Um, and I think that it, it sort of reinvigorates your own uh, interest in VR as well, uh, knowing that these developers really like that. Um, have you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I was actually talking to someone from HTC um, the other day and asking them a similar sort of question, where. Um, you know, regardless of how one feels about HTC, the Vive, whatever, or how you feel compared to Oculus, you know, I'm always of the mindset that as someone who loves VR, I'm just grateful to all these places for investing the resources. And and I was asking them, you know, you guys are so early to this and you're you're putting in a lot of money and time. How do you avoid the fate where you do all the legwork now and then it does take off as per your hopes and expectations and then Microsoft and Apple and all these other companies just swoop in and say like, you know, thanks for the hard work, which is a little bit of what you're describing with developers, maybe people coming in now or at various points that don't seem to have that passion. Um, and I think that that is a large part thematically of what the book is about because the person from HTC didn't have a great answer because I don't think that there is a great answer. You know, they're trying to do certain things with their ecosystem um, and and to scale their product. But, but you know, coming in early doesn't, it, so much of it is about timing, and I think that Oculus very explicitly and certainly implicitly, um, you know, 
dangled the carrot of getting in early would help developers um, benefit from the this this you know growing VR landscape. And I, I think that, that remains to be seen whether they're you know I think Denny at Cloud, Denny Unger at Cloudhead Games is as early to this and as knowledgeable about this as anyone. Um, but we'll see whether that ends up benefiting Cloudhead Games. But you know he's he was someone who was involved with VR back from the MTBS 3D days um, and actually designed the first Oculus logo, which is in the book. Um, so I think that that's, you know, that's just something sort of like that innovator's dilemma sort of thing. And, and uh, it just gets into this thematic topic of the right time to do things and whether you benefit from being early. Um, but I'm glad that you used the word passion a few times because that is really what it comes down to. Like one of the things that I liked most about Palmer Lucky, um, and I understand that a lot of people, that he's a polarizing character, and I think there's a lot of fair things to criticize him about, and I can even understand if people don't like him. But the one thing that I think is hard to not admire about him is that the book starts off with him living in a camper trailer, um, kind of just obsessed with VR, not really thinking there was going to be any monetary reward for this. And that's those are just the kind of people that I'm often drawn to who purely are doing this for passion. And uh, you know, clearly this ended up in one of the best case scenarios for him, at least financially. But you know what drove him early on was passion, not money. And and you know a lot of people early on in the story, that's the that's the case for them. And I think that's pretty admirable. Speaking I have a about question. Palmer, um, oh, go ahead, Anthony. I, I, I asked a question well, already. I, I was just going to say real quick. Did you talk with uh, Did you talk with Palmer Lucky's parents at all for this? I did. They're, okay. uh, they're mentioned early in the book, and I did speak with his. Uh, I spoke with his father. I never spoke with his mother, but I spoke with his father a few times. Do you think? Because one of the things that you mentioned is that Palmer is this internal optimist, and he's always thinking about. Um, you know, he's not thinking about why why you can't do something. He's thinking about how can you do something, or or I forget what the quote was exactly that you had in there as far as that. I'm just curious, did you get a sense from his father that he kind of got that from him or? Um, that's a good question. And I, I did not get that sense. Um, him and his father are pretty different. They, they have similar mannerisms, but his father, as, as it's mentioned, is a, a car dealer or he worked at a car dealership selling cars. I'm not particularly familiar with the technological side of things, um, at least when it comes to high tech, obviously with cars, he's very familiar. Um, but no, I, it's a good question. It's a good question too, because it makes you wonder like, where did that side of his personality come from? Cause I don't think it so much came from his parents. Um, I do think that like purely speculation. So, so much of my early understanding of Palmer is thinking of him as like a child of the internet. Um, and though he's only 10 years or so younger than me, it does feel like he's from a very different generation than me. Um, and I think because he was homeschooled, because he spent most of his time online, because most of his friends were from anywhere in the country online, like it does fuel that sense of, I can figure out how to do this. The information has to be out there somewhere and I'm going to find it. And I think that that is probably a big part of where that side of his personality comes from. One quick bonus question. Wait, Steve, one sec, because I just want to piggyback off that last question. Because you, you're you really familiar with the whole retro thing, you know, doing console wars and, and Nintendo and Sega and all of that. Isn't it kind of interesting that, I mean, this is almost like a sidebar thing, but there's a lot of younger people that are really interested in that era, you know, the retro gaming era. And Palmer was kind of interested in retro gaming to a degree. Like, didn't he kind of start out just trying to, like, 
um, portableize all these yeah. like retro stuff. Yeah, that's a that's a great observation because I mean certainly it must have helped for me in his reading console wars. I you know I kind of imagined that for people my age, you know, thirties and older, grew up in the eighties and nineties, that there would be an inherent interest in console wars. Um, but I worried that it wouldn't really translate or be interesting to younger kids. And to some degree, that's true. But like you said, you know, before founding Oculus, Palmer's uh, real big claim to fame was founding a web forum called Mod Retro, which was devoted to um, modifying old consoles, particularly portableizing them. And that's where he spent most of his time every day. And that's where he made a lot of his friends. And I always did like the fact that Palmer was fascinated by technology from before his time, because I think that it's not uncommon for people to sort of look to the to sort of ignore the past and think that this what this moment now is the only moment that matters and uh you know whether it was you know the uh palmer has publicly talked about this thing it's not all that crazy or exciting but but him and his friends have um you know talked about potentially doing some anime some uh at some point about called like the last hot rod and it's about a future where cars are autonomous um and it's about some misfit group of um kids or engineers that know how to handle old cars and i just think of the fact that he's interested in those kinds of things like <laughs> like semi-nostalgic um sorts of engineering is it, it, is symptomatic of the kind of person he is he still wants to know how things work beyond his time and i think that that uh was certainly fascinating for me it's probably a good um entry point to our relationship sticking with palmer um, from what I understand, you, um, at least through the project and, and maybe even after him leaving Oculus, you, you two remained in contact to some degree. Um, what do you think, I guess my question is, when, when thinking of, of his situation, and um, I'm, I'm grateful that he was able to sort of kickstart, not sort of, kickstart, um, both figuratively and literally, um, the current VR, uh, uh, the fact that it's a consumer available product. Um, but at the same time, it's sort of melancholy that he um, isn't working in VR right now. Like, you know, he was, he, he was, seemed to be so passionate about it and, and, and so lucky. Do you think, um, he's, he's obviously very passionate about the company he started up and, and working in national security. Uh, I'm not too well-versed about that company specifically, but do you think that he will, um, come back to VR in some capacity? And, um, you know, if, if you know, you know, I know that he can't speak, uh, openly, uh, you know, maybe, uh, on the record or, or maybe even off the record with you but um just what is your gut feeling uh have we seen really the last of palmer lucky in the vr scene um in any way um yeah it's a good question i this is this is also just like purely speculation on my part but i would say absolutely not you know th there's no way that this is the last that we've seen that i wish that i had specific information that i could say um and i and i i don't it might exist and I just don't know it, but I at least know from the fact that a lot of his close friends that he knows from that were that were friendly with him from Mod Retro and worked at Oculus and now work at his new defense tech company Underall, you know, they talk about the stuff all the time. So it's still very much on their horizon. And and you're right, it was very melancholy. It was sad to see him go. Um, it was clearly not his choice to leave Oculus um, and Facebook in March 2017, though. Facebook seemed to suggest otherwise at the time, um, and that was that was really sad. There's there's a line later in the book, um, you know, it's weird because some of the stuff is kind of spoilers, but we also lived through it, so it's not really spoilers at all. But I just remember 
Um, so basically, the, the short summary of what happened is that in September 2016, news came out from the Daily Beast that headline was Facebook billionaire secretly funding Trump's meme machine. And the implication was that every dirty meme that you've seen online, um, I guess in favor of Trump, all the misogynistic, anti-Semitic, evil memes, Palmer was somehow responsible for it, which was not true. But he got sidelined side side at Oculus and Facebook for the next six months. Um, towards the end of the six months was the Zenimax Oculus trial. And then immediately after that trial came to the end, Palmer ended up being fired from Facebook. Um, and during those six months, Palmer was not in, you know, public, he was not allowed to be on social media and also barred from talking to his colleagues. Um, but he was talking to me. There were certainly a bunch of topics he was not allowed to talk about that we couldn't talk about, but it was just very interesting being in touch with someone during that time when their fate sort of hangs in the balance. Um, and the, the spoiler thing I mentioned was I just remember him mentioning one time that he did not want to be another Eduardo Savaron, the guy who co-founded Facebook with Mark Zuckerberg and has sort of faded off into obscurity. Um, and and I think that now, with even with just Onroll and, and this, how successful it seems to be, we know that Palmer is not going to fade off into obscurity. And that's pretty amazing. But like talking to him during those six months and even the couple months after he left, left Facebook, it, it, that was certainly not a certainty. Um, you know, investors didn't want to talk to him. He really was, as Wired once called him, perceived as the worst person in Silicon Valley. So I'm glad that, you know, the trajectory did not continue down that path, but it, but it was looking pretty doom and gloom there for a while. You mentioned spoilers, and um, just to kind of give you a backdrop, the, the community watching the show right now, um, I'll say are very, very deeply passionate about VR. And, and um, we, we didn't get a chance to chat too much before we started recording, but I'd imagine you're going to go on um, some promotional tours and, and other media outlets, and those will be sort of wider, maybe tech-centric outlets. Um, here on VR Roundtable, this is a very narrow focus core of, of VR freaks and geeks. Um, and, and, and I say that because they... Um, they are going to be familiar. The audience here are going to be pretty familiar with uh, the 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 sort of the founding of Oculus, the story of Palmer Lucky, and and getting into your book. What um, you know, will they have? Uh, will there be some snippets and some some sort of behind the scenes, some deeper information that that maybe the uh, people on on MT, um, MTSB and, and and you know the early days of the Reddit uh, on Oculus? What what will the deep 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 rooted fans that are so vested in this technology and this this sort of story? What will they get out of the book? Will, will there be something for them? That's an awesome question because I should say that when I was writing Console Wars, which I reference so much, not because I'm trying to sell copies of Console Wars, but for me, it was like a life-changing experience. It was my first time finally doing what I love for a living writing, and it was also my first writing experience. It wasn't like I wrote for years for Polygon or Verge and all that stuff. Like, I had been a failed screenwriter, but that was my first time really thinking about writing and getting it out there publicly. And in the course of writing that book, I, I sort of came to the conclusion that the writing, that I want everything I write to be for my grandma. She's like my ideal audience. How can I get someone who doesn't care about tech at all, who doesn't know any of these players to care about the story. But at the same time, I hoped Console Wars was going to be read by people who are gamers or who care about the game industry. And same thing with this book. I want this book to be um, 
beloved by the tech community and also the hardcore VR community. So I don't want to, um, you know, write it for a lowest common denominator audience like my grandma and talk down to this community that is pretty much the reason that VR is even here today. Um, and and so sort of the compromise that I was feel like I was able to do is um, at the least I can I will be able to give readers much more insight into what these people were thinking, um, whether it's Palmer, whether it's Brendan Aree, Mike Antonoff, um, Narav Patel. And then also just because I ended up getting access to like over 25,000 documents, most of them emails, but a lot of internal memos, just give, just uh, making sure that that is something, um, picking the best parts for readers to see. So like, you know, one of my early favorite finds, and I guess it's not super revelatory, but um, like uh, Chris Dykus, who is was the first Oculus employee, he joined just before QuakeCon in 2012. He was able to pull up old text messages and Skype conversations with Palmer back in 2012 when they, when Palmer was starting the company. And so just seeing how Palmer is talking about and thinking about Oculus at the time, um, um, I, I'll butcher the exact quote, but Palmer says something about he's taking a year off from school to see if this thing will work. And, you know, worst case scenario, I'll have a fun experience. And um, he talks about how it's not the money is not important to him. It's more just about getting VR out there. And just some of these things that um, I think are, to me, they're historic because of what Oculus was able to accomplish. Um, and then also just knowing from interviewing people how often history can be revised after the fact. Um, I think it's important to get as much as possible in these people's words at the time. Um, and then there's other things that I think even hardcore VR fans and members of the community um, don't know because they were not supposed to know. Like, um, for example, that how close Palmer was to um, signing up to work at Sony instead of doing Oculus. You know, uh, I've heard that speculated before. There might even be references, but it was in Palmer's best interest not to talk about that publicly while he was in Oculus. Um, and then other things too, like the relationship between Oculus and Valve. It was a very intimate, collaborative relationship, one that didn't really end that well. And that's the sort of thing that we all kind of knew, but we don't know the extent of it. And it also didn't make sense for either company to really talk about it. So, so you'll get to sort of peek behind the curtain at those things. And I do um, try to include as much as possible, like archival emails and text messages. So people know that this is not just like Blake Harris's opinion of what happened, or it's not even Palmer Lucky's opinion reflecting five years later of what he wishes would have happened or what he thinks would have happened, but to actually have that source material so people can know that this is what people were thinking and doing at the time. Yeah, I'm going to jump in with one more, and Chris, then okay. we'll come to you. But kind of following yeah. off of that theme um, and having read a portion of the book that you sent, um, can you talk about what readers will read and how will they know that what they're reading is um, – in, is factual, uh, and and I almost hate to say it that way because you know I don't I don't want to question credibility or anything, but there will always be um, people that will you know that are loyal to a company you know irrationally loyal even. Um, shout out David Haney, and they will try to spin what you say, and will say you know they'll just try to argue against it. So. Um, Going back to my previous question, this question to those of us that are really vested and really kind of care about the story and and want to get a factual account, um, can you talk about how how you wrote the book, how you um, basically you know how it's it's truthful? Um, but I imagine that you had to uh, sort of tie some things together so that the book wasn't a copy and paste of emails and such. So it had to sure. at least be enjoyable, right? For sure, and and I would say that. 
I mean, it's a good question, but it also just gets to what was critically important for me. When I was writing console wars, I, you know, I stand behind the accuracy of that work, but it was also something that happened 20 years ago that the conversations in that were recreated and there was a fictional element to it, though I did work with the people involved. So it wasn't like I was just sitting there making stuff up, but you know, it was more about capturing the gist of the history um, than it was actually capturing snapshots. And this book, because I had access to so much material, had a little bit of a different objective. And then especially after what happened with Palmer in 2016, when I saw firsthand how the media, um, in, in his case at least, used um, spin and misleading statements to create a narrative that was not true and also held no accountability for that uh, lack of factual accuracy, you know, I really felt like that was a challenge to myself to, and it would be pretty, uh, pretty crappy of me to um, cover all that and not do a better job myself. So I, you know, there's much less, I feel like, of me as the author in this book. I, I mentioned in the author's note that I really try to step out of the way as much as possible and let the characters tell their own story. And I also mentioned in there that I was heavily influenced by my experiences writing oral histories and doing um, documentary work. And so even if it's something that somebody might disagree with or might not fit the spin of what somebody thinks, I think it's in most cases pretty clear what the perspective is. So, you know, if you have someone like Palmer perceiving starting Oculus as the most difficult startup experience ever, yeah, you know, you could argue whether that's true or not, but at least you get a sense of like, that's coming from a specific character, that's coming from a conversation. Um, and, you know, fortunately for the first half of the book, I was able to share it with um, I think all, well, I'll say most, but I think all of the major players featured in the story, whether that's Paul Bettner at Playful, Palmer Lucky, Brendan Arib, Nate Mitchell, Mike Antonoff, and, you know, kind of like the first 20 plus employees at Oculus, including John Carmack. Um, and I really appreciated John tweeting the other day that he read the first half of the story. And in his perspective, it was all very accurate because um, unsurprisingly, Facebook um, is, is not, not a big fan of the book, and they've made a few comments about the accuracy of it. But accuracy and authenticity, which to me is sort of like capturing the feeling and emotion of a time period, uh, specifically important here because of like we all refer to this as the golden age, and, and it did feel like something special at the time. Um, you know, doing that was critically important to me, way more than any sort of storytelling aspect. Um, so I guess. I guess, as we also find today, it's hard. There is no exact answer for how to prove something is accurate um, with things being able to be doctored, with narrative and spin being able to change things. But I can say that that was the most important guiding principle for me. And fortunately, the, you know, the people that it's about have publicly or at least privately told me that they find it to be accurate. So um, I feel pretty good about that. That's awesome. Yeah. Like I you know, as a, as a VR nut, like, I think there's so much in this book that, you know, you can learn from it. Just hearing like the background story on everything was fascinating. Cause all I knew was like, okay, dev kit one's coming out. This, the Kickstarter's huge, but I didn't know everything that led up to that. So like, it's fantastic to just start to peer into that. And I can't wait to see the full book. Um, I also thought it was really cool to, to see what Mark Zuckerberg thought about VR back in those days. You know, that was like, that was so weird for me because like he would always, you know, every once in a while he'd come out and be like, yeah, VR is the next big thing. But he, we never knew if he really, you know, embodied that. He really thought that. And it was it was cool to see what he thought about VR. So like, what was it like 
uh, learning about like those early days, uh, like emails or messages from Mark Zuckerberg or him visiting Oculus early on? What was that like? It, it was it was it was amazing. I mean, professionally, I know that stuff about Mark Zuckerberg or Facebook executives is probably going to be fascinating to a certain audience. But also for me, being a VR, not being, I would consider myself a true believer, being someone who really wants to, to succeed, I had the same skepticism. Like, is Mark just seeing this as one of 10 bets that he's going to make? And yeah, you know, he believes in it, but like, he's just kind of throwing money at it. And to see that he does seem to be sincere about it, um, it comes from a strategic place of you know viewing Apple and Google as competitors with their own IO, uh, with their own OSs and platforms and wanting to have his own um, OS and platform for the future. Um, you know that's understandable. I think that, that it was it was pretty cool and I think also very important. Um, you know as we talk about now whether it's like fake news or just the way or just the role that platforms and social media plays in our lives, it does in a sense, create, give everyone the chance to create their own reality, metaphorically speaking. You know, you only see news that sort of affirms what you already believe, and you kind of create these own echo chambers. And um, I don't know whether that's a problem or not, but given that virtual reality is a, is a threshold beyond just interacting through a screen, I think it's important to see how the leader of that company feels about these things and feels about things like privacy and, and how he sees the future. Just hey, I have a question. Go ahead, uh, uh, a question. This is like the, the number one question I'd want to ask you of this whole entire session is a question that has been in my mind for quite some time now. And that is Facebook, you know, they paid $3 billion for this. And, and my question is, do you think Mark Zuckerberg and the powers that be there, the brain trust at Facebook, like in in their private moments, if they could go back in time, would they still do that? Would they still pay $3 billion for Oculus? Is this like ultimately, I mean, obviously this is going to be decided like 15 years from now right. when we find out, you know, but but do you think they kind of look at this as almost like, oh, they, they kind of screwed up. They, they may have paid several billion too much, or maybe they could have did this without even bothering with Oculus. That's an, that's an excellent question. And, and I'm patting myself on the back a little and saying that because I've asked that of early Oculus founders and employees in the past few months. Um, in their opinion, they don't, Basically, like I've asked, like, do you think that Mark regrets buying Oculus, or that he regrets buying Oculus at that price? Um, none of them seem to believe that he would. But I also can understand that from their perspective, you know, this is their baby. It would be hard for them to say, like, yeah, he overpaid for us. Um, the thing that I keep coming back to is that is just looking at old um, statements that Mark has made in the past, even years prior to. Um, acquiring Oculus, you know, one of the things that, you know, it was a big decision for the guys at Oculus to sell to Facebook, um, or even just to sell it all. So I shouldn't even make it seem like Facebook was a specifically difficult, challenging thing. But, but one of the things that inspired them was this idea that Facebook was going to give them the autonomy to do what they want. And that in the past, Mark had made a lot of statements about how he doesn't buy companies just for the company or for the product, he buys it for the people and he had made some statements in the past about like 
he wants he thinks Facebook is a founder friendly company and he buys the company for the founders. And here we are, almost a what is it? Almost the five year anniversary of the of the acquisition and almost all the founders and early employees are gone or about to be gone. So I think that if you're looking at it from, you know, I think that market share wise, like I, it doesn't justify the acquisition at this point. But if you were going to say, well, it was never about that. It was about getting these talented people. Um, then I think that you have to look at the fact that, yeah, John Carmack is still there and probably going to be there for a while. I think Michael Abrash is still there and probably going to be there for a while. But beyond those two, I don't think many other early employees are going to be there. And as much as I admire Michael and John, I don't know if they were enough to justify a $3 billion acquisition. Um, so I don't know. I think that I, I would have to imagine that he regrets it in some way or that if he doesn't regret it, it is more about, you know, the looking at the, the tangential and supplemental aspects of the acquisition, like buying Oculus did jumpstart Facebook towards more hardware, being more of a hardware company, and also get them to really prepare for this next generation platform of AR and VR. As we know, there's over a thousand people at Facebook now focusing on this, and that probably would have been harder to mobilize if not for the acquisition. But then again, um, like you're at the end of your question, like could they have done this without buying Oculus? It seems somewhat likely. There's, um, there's a couple of questions that I wanted to ask based on that anyway, but the, the first one I wanted to get to, um, Blake, is to do with the... Um, so you had insight into Facebook. Now, this is the thing that, that is really intriguing to me. Now, if, if supposing some kind of journalist or author just approached Facebook and said, I want to write a behind-the-scenes uh, sort of biography of how the inner workings of what goes on in Facebook, I think they would immediately get refused. There is no way that would happen. But because you had your interest in VR and, and the Oculus uh, way to get in there, I think this is actually probably equally as interesting. This book is equally as interesting to people of uh, who are fans of VR as to people that are just interested in how Facebook works behind the scenes as right. well. Um, and I think it, it's so interesting that you you have this um, this approach where reading, just reading the small amount that we have already, um, that there is so much insight into the, the, the behind the scenes of Facebook, which could never be achieved in any other way. I think, I think honestly, I don't think that could, could happen in, in a, a way that, that you did it um, with this. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think you, you I guess, did you get lucky? <laughs> oh, no, I agree with you. I, I got extremely lucky. Like I definitely, from the beginning and for the first few years, I did have like blinders on. This really was a story about the resurrection of consumer VR focused mostly on Oculus. And, and it was a very, um, I mean, it was a book about virtual reality, and most of it still is. But I do think that the final 100, 150 pages is like about something entirely different that has, I wouldn't say almost nothing to do with VR, because there's still a lot of VR stuff in there, like, you know, how much to open the platform and the, the botched launch or the launch of CV1 and sort of a little bit of a battle with the Vive. But it is sort of this like roundabout uncanny look at Facebook in a way that I don't think I would that anyone would have been able to do otherwise um and in particular it's it's very fascinating because like I think I think a lot of times uh maybe this stretches back to my screenwriting days but you know fish out of water stories are very interesting ways to see um 
you know, a, a, a different prism into like into a different sort of world because you have someone who were who everything is foreign to them. Um, and so if you have like the first 400 pages of a book about Palmer and Brendan and Nate and Mike and Rob and dozens of other people and you sort of get to know them and sympathize with them or at least understand their objectives. And then you see them dropped into Menlo Park and, and you know, they realize they're not in Kansas anymore and that everything is so different. You are sort of experiencing with them this uh, this this confusion and insight into Facebook. And then, yeah, I got super lucky with the timing because now there's such a national attention into what Facebook is, what they're doing. And I think that that is important. And just like from a purely professional standpoint, there was, because I took two, like two plus years to finish this more than I was originally supposed to, the original manuscript was due to my publisher in, uh, uh, September 2016, and obviously now it's a little more than two and a half, two years later. Um, there, there, there was a point at which the book was pretty close and began the process to be canceled. And my editor at the time um, had recently told me that, you know, it was really problematic that that one of the main characters was a Trump supporter, which I thought was ridiculous because that had nothing to do with the book. Um, and and then you know the publisher or the editor, I should say, changed her tune because I think Facebook made a better, sexier villain than even a, a Trump supporter, dare I say. And so you know, timing-wise, it was good that um, there is this national growing interest in Facebook and that my book has this really unique insight into it. Um, and also just a lot of, you know, a lot of that insight, my takeaway was the, the hypocrisy of it. You know, Facebook is... Um, they, you know, they internally, externally, publicly, everything, they always, you know, they, they talk about being based on this ethos of um, openness and transparency. And that's true in a lot of cases. Um, they are more open and transparent seemingly than the average company. But, but what I really found fascinating about covering Palmer's final six or seven months at the company was how hypocritical they were, how little they told employees how um, willing they were to lie and mislead employees and also myself and to do all these things that, you know, it's really easy to say that you have an ethos that sounds good and to follow it most of the time. But when push comes to shove, if you're not abiding by your core principles, that's a real problem. And that's definitely what I saw um, with the Palmer situation and why Palmer's experience is such a big part of the end of the book. Yes, of course, he's a founder. So I think it's important that people or that you know that people would be interested to know why he leaves, but I also think that Palmer is just a great proxy for a lot of things going on in our digital age, um, from fake news and online mobs to just seeing how a company as big as Facebook actually reacts when when stuff is on the line. We know that Facebook is a, a very interesting company. Um, it's easy to hate them. It's easy to love them. Um, and, and, and speaking of, of of their acquisition of Oculus, I'd imagine that Zuckerberg and his leadership team had a uh, a sort of plan in mind. And and we've seen through the uh, departure of Palmer Lucky, uh, more recently with the departure of Brendan Arib, uh, which I think is rumored over you know a disagreement with where he thought the Rift successor should be going. Um, do you think with with the insight that you have both you know, maybe told through the book, but but maybe in, in details that 
maybe didn't make it into the book. Do you think we are seeing the intentional execution of Facebook's vision back from when they made the acquisition? Uh, in ways, it, it, it just seems convenient that the the original Oculus leadership team is is being picked off one by one. Um, I wonder if if that is by design or if that sort of just happens organically when when someone gets rich, you know, at, at some point they just, hey, why am I working anymore? No, it's a really good question. Um, I guess it's a question of intention. Like, did Facebook, is this where they wanted to end up anyway? And this was just a convenient route for it to happen. I think that as much as I have grown to feel negatively about a lot of aspects of Facebook based on my own personal experiences reporting the story, I, I would like to give them a lot of credit for basically living up to their word in terms of um, the launch of CV1. I think that one of the things that appealed most to Oculus leadership was the, the belief that they were going to have a lot of autonomy with um, you know their company and launching their first consumer product. And I think that Facebook really did give them that autonomy to do things how they wanted for the most part. And it was after the launch of CV1 not going as well as anyone there had expected, not just Facebook, but the people at Oculus too. Um, and that it was after that that Facebook really started to step in more. Um, and so I can see how it might look like, you know, one by one they're picking off the people who started it. But I also think that had things gone more successfully. Um, that probably wouldn't have been the case. I mean, Palmer's situation is a unique example because I think that had almost nothing to do with dollars and cents. But, but in terms of Brendan or even, you know, Mike Antonoff is still Mike Antonoff, who was uh, a co-founder and and programmed the first uh, SDK. He's still with Facebook, but he's no longer with the Oculus team. Um, so, you know, that's sort of why I said earlier that he's not there anymore. He is at the company, but he's no longer at Oculus. Um, and so I think that. Had things gone differently, it would have been much more reasonable for us to expect the leadership to be there. But I don't think anyone's particularly happy with how it's turned out. Do you trust, with with the insight that you have, do you trust Facebook to be the leader or a leader in 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 bringing VR to the masses? Mm, that's a really good question. Um, I I would say that that Facebook in its current state or the way that we have our current relationships with with big tech companies like facebook or google like no i don't but i think that that is largely based on how much they control all the decision making and don't give the user the chance to make their own decisions and i'll give you this is a small example and maybe even a stupid example but it felt in retrospect, a little bit revelatory for me. I remember I met with uh, Andrew Bosworth, who's currently the head of AR and VR for Facebook. And at the beginning of our conversation, we were talking about um, fake news. So it was like unrelated to anything. It was just small talk. And I said to him that I had an idea for one way that Facebook could better um, you know, deal with the current issues with news and spreading false stories. And I said that it would be great I thought it'd be great if when people shared a story on Facebook, there was like a little bar that said how, how much time the person had spent reading it. So, you know, if it said zero seconds, then you know this person's just sharing it. All this thought was a title. And if they spent five minutes, I'd probably be more likely to read it because I thought, oh, this person spent five minutes. I must be a good story. And, and he told me that they already have something like that that's part of the algorithm. And 
I came to interpret that answer to be like, yes, that is a good idea, but we would rather use that information how we think is the best way than to like to then to give you that power to make that decision. And so that that's gets to the theme that I came across a lot with Facebook. And I think that they are generally people with good intentions. They just think that they know best. Um, and maybe they're right or maybe they're wrong, but I'm always of the mindset that the user, consumer, whatever should be able to decide. And I'd like to make those decisions on my own. And, you know, if you just look, you know, Facebook will tell you, oh, you know, we have a settings feature and you can change things. But if you go to your settings feature on Facebook, I mean, there's like less options there than if you push start in any video game and see what the options are. Like for this thing that impacts 2 billion people daily globally, you'd think there would just be like hundreds and hundreds of options for things that you can do to curate your experience to be what you want it to be as opposed to what they think that you want it to be. And that is why I am somewhat fearful or at least skeptical of, of and, and why they don't have my trust in the future because I don't think any organization trying to appeal to that many people is going to come up with a solution that's best for everyone and they should give us more power to make those decisions. But, um, but like I said, I do think there are people with mostly good intentions and I'm hoping that, that will end up leading them with enough pressure to realizing or to believing that giving more decision-making power to the user uh, will create a better experience for the user and then in turn for them as a company. So it remains to be seen, but they, you know, having spent the past few years working on this and getting a unique insight into them, um, you know, they, they do not currently have my trust and it's not, and it's not necessarily for privacy related reasons. It's just for more of like, um, philosophical reasons. Like I feel like they just see themselves as the ones who should be deciding what's best. And I wish that they gave the user more power. One question I have regarding the whole Facebook thing is on, on the one hand, they're probably the best thing that ever happened to this second wave of VR because without them, how many years back would we have been which that's almost like a question in and, in and of itself like would sony would any of these other companies i mean valve yeah but but the question i actually have though is facebook being such a huge gigantic behemoth of a company at a certain point like if this vr thing doesn't start to go in the in the right kind of direction i could see a company like facebook like it's just too small it, it's you know, it, at, at a certain point, like, where's the cutoff is what I'm wondering. Like, how many more years are they going to give this thing? And if it doesn't turn around, when are they going to be like, oh, well, I guess this VR thing didn't work. And they're just going to they're just going to say, well, we tried, but it didn't work out. No, that's a super important question, because it's something I think about all the time. And I think that though I have very conflicted opinions on Facebook, I am genuinely grateful for all the money and resources that they have put into VR these past five years because we would not be where we are and also not just where we are now, but we wouldn't have other companies um, also competing or, or you know, investing their own resources. So you, know, you have to be appreciative of that fact. But I do worry that um, if Facebook were to come out tomorrow and probably say like, yep, you know, we tried our best with VR, but it's just not for us. Like, I do worry that the industry would kind of collapse because Facebook has subsidized a lot of the content, a lot of the research, and done a lot of things that have been very beneficial to moving the industry forward. And then I remember this is like a, a stupid thing that I shouldn't have been thinking about, but like, you know, if my book 
I worry like, oh, if my book is damaging to Oculus or to Facebook, like that, that's bad because I don't want them to stop investing in this. But I, I don't think that's something that I should be thinking about when trying to report what accurately happened. So I hope that doesn't happen. But, but I do worry that that Facebook is the biggest thing pushing this industry forward. Where I feel a little bit of confidence is that, you know, as we've seen through like org charts or just the fact that. Um, Andrew Bosworth, who I mentioned, is not just the head of VR for Facebook. He's the head of AR and VR. And a lot of these titles have like that slash of AR and VR. And so I think that while we are in the trough of disillusionment for VR, or at least um, going through some lean times that might um, make it understandable if Facebook wanted to um, minimize their investment or pull out their investment, I think the fact that, that, that it's um, tied together with AR and that there is still sort of like a, an excitement about AR or sort of getting into more of a hype phase with AR, I think is actually going to end up helping um, justify Facebook's investment because they really do see AR and VR as pretty similar and understandably so. I mean, in the at the end, if they, they are going to converge as a pretty similar thing. Um, so that's something that I've been thinking recently is probably going to help salvage the um, continued investment in VR. But, but it is interesting because so you know, I, my my previous book was about console wars, so I I don't really see console wars or comp competitive stuff like that as bad thing. I think that that's a good thing for the consumers, and I think that's a good thing for developers. But I was a little surprised early on, uh, but not early on. I was a little surprised around the time of the launch of the Rift and CV1 that there seemed to be so much backlash from the community about exclusives and stuff like that, because that a lot of times was Facebook subsidizing the development of things that would not otherwise be developed. Um, in one case, I mean, Lucky's Tale being an easy example because I talked about in the book, you know, that game would not have existed if Oculus didn't make an investment in it. And of course, in return for that investment, they got some form of exclusivity. To me, that's like a great thing. That's a win-win for all. Um, but there were a lot of people who were upset about that. And um, that that also frightened me a little bit about, you know, the business model that Oculus was moving forward with, which I thought was one that is going to push VR forward, but it did seem to disrupt or to uh, to annoy a lot of people. Yeah. Can I ask um, a bonus AR AR based question real quick? Uh, sure. um, so real quick, on, as far as AR is concerned, like one thing I've always kind of thought about in regards to AR is, I think everybody kind of agrees that that AR is going to be huge, but it's just a matter of how long how long is it going to take similar to VR? How long is it going to take for all of this stuff to coalesce? But my question with AR is you've got somebody like Mark Zuckerberg, right? He probably in, in internally believes that AR is going to be huge, but it's going to take a while. And then when when you have other companies like Magic Leap that are getting out there and they're releasing a product now and it's not ready, but, but they're releasing it now. They're making things now. They're starting, you know what I mean? That the wheels are turning, they're out there, they're doing it, even though it's not working, they're doing it. Doesn't like I, in, in my opinion, I would think somebody like Mark Zuckerberg, 
it, he knows that AR is not ready, but at the same time, he starts to get nervous, you know, because here's Magic Leap getting in there and they're getting started. And so if you, in the background, if you think AR is going to be big, but it, it's going to take a while, and then this other company's jumping out there, does that make him nervous? Is that why we're seeing all of these titles, AR slash VR? Like, is Facebook, like, do you think they're going to start to almost pivot more towards VR? I mean, AR, AR. Um, yeah, I do think they're going to, but I don't necessarily think it's just because of the fear of competition. I think it's just because um, they, because the VR has been um, pretty slow, and at least it's like another exciting thing to be a part of. But, but that's a good question. I mean, I, I spoke with people. It's not so much in the book, but who people at Facebook who believe that Mark's investment in Oculus was a defensive move and because he's a control freak that didn't want to miss out on the next big thing. So he's got this, you know, FOMO thing where, yeah, okay, we'll overpay for this, but I don't want to miss out. And so if that really is a part of his thinking, then then surely it would be a part of his thinking with AR2 to think like we got to get there first. And though I can't speak to how accurate that is in his, in his mind and in his heart, um, I think the book opens with, a speech that he gave to Oculus on the day of the acquisition in March 2014. And, and he explicitly talks about um, missing out on the smartphone revolution and not wanting that to happen again. Um, and so there is, you know, um, I don't know to what degree it influenced his, his decision making in the acquisition, but, but, but the missing out on the smartphone um, wave is a huge part of all this. And that's something I've been thinking about more myself, and I'd kind of be curious to get your guys' takes too, because on the one hand, you could say, like, I do feel like a lot of expectations for the VR slash AR, just VR industry over the past few years, um, people see it as like this next, the next platform after smartphones. And, and they are basically, what I'm getting is that they sort of anticipate an adoption similar to smartphones. Whereas talking to people like Palmer Lucky, or Narav Patel, or just um, thinking about it myself, I always sort of imagined that the adoption of VR, um, or maybe even AR, like would be much more like the PC computer revolution of the late 70s, where you have Apple as like the darling success story. But then again, that's in the late 70s. And my family didn't own our first PC until I think 1995. So it wasn't like this thing went mainstream right away. It really did connect with an enthusiast audience and then slowly grow. And at first it was much more for business. And then eventually it came to the mainstream. And that was, I don't know that I thought it was going to take 17 years after the acquisition by Facebook for this to go mainstream, but I did not expect it was going to be like, oh, next Christmas, every kid's going to want to have a Rift or a Go or a Quest. Um, so I'm curious what you guys thought when, um, as people who have been interested in VR and this excitement for the past five to seven years, like, what was your sort of best case, most optimistic scenario for adoption and where we are now? Yes, it does feel like a bit of a letdown. But had I asked you five years ago or seven years ago, would you be surprised by where we are now? I'll this, jump in, then we can go yeah, around the round table. Yeah. Um, well, everyone hit this answer quickly. Um, I, we're not where I thought we would be. When I, when I first donned a VR headset, um, I thought, damn, I am in the game. Like there was something, the stereoscopic vision, the the scale, the depth. Um, I thought it was revolutionary and, and 
pardon the pun, game changing. Um, and, and to a degree, I still think it's the future. You know, um, I, I, the VR and AR marrying, it has so much potential and companies are going to figure out a way to monetize it. Um, I think the biggest problem we have now is, is software. You know, it, it's difficult to break the cycle. 30 years of gaming, just, just keep kind of keep it in the scope of gaming. 30 years of gaming has, has, become this well-oiled industry that has worked out all the kinks and has become very lean. We haven't seen price changes in gaming in a long time. Uh, mainstream games are still $59.99. They've been $59.99 for God, forever. And so, you know, it's a well-oiled machine for it to kind of break that cycle and do something different um, is taking longer than, than, I, than I thought it would. And, and I think right now the gamers, the tech enthusiasts are what is going to have to get VR off of the ground. And I think that's kind of what Oculus was thinking. And then Facebook also with the acquisition, because if we think of Facebook, they've come into it supporting a, a gaming centric focus. We, you know, we think Facebook is a social platform. It's, you know, they, they bought WhatsApp, they bought Instagram, it's social, 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 but their involvement for the most part with, with Oculus has been steering them down a gaming road. And I don't know if that's the John Carmack influence or, or what it is exactly there. And I think we're seeing now they're starting to try to, to uh, push whatever weight they have around and start steering it more towards the social, trying to find a way to make it more ubiquitous. Um, I'm, I'm not optimistic that they're going to get there because I, I, I I'm not I'm not sure just yet that that someone who is content socializing on their smartphone is going to want to go through the friction of, of putting on a headset of some sort. Um, so I would love to see gamers kind of carry it across the closer to the frictionless threshold. Um, so really, I'm in a state of confusion and disillusionment, as we've mentioned, and um, I don't know, you know, really what it's going to take to cross the line. I'm just sitting here with my fingers crossed that we do cross the line in one form or the other. There's a uh, well. Actually, Chris, you've you've. Uh, why don't you go first on this one? Go ahead. Yeah, sure. Um, I I think I thought so much more was gonna happen. You know, like I was still in high school back then, and I was like, I tried the dev kit one, and like immediately I'm like, man, this is like totally the future. I was blown away. I remember my first reaction was me go putting it on into Minecraft for my my old Minecraft gaming channel back in the day. And, uh, <laughs> What a what a fun time. But yeah, you know, I was just blown away. I'm like, man, everyone's going to want this. But, you know, on one hand, I thought it would be way more. On the other hand, I think it's starting to get there. Um, just in my college, you know, it's a college full of gamers. Everyone's uh, game majors here, you know, game design, game programming. And, you know, there's starting to be more and more VR games every year. It's definitely slower than I thought. But at the same time, I don't think it's like all doom and gloom. Like, Almost all my friends have VR headsets now. I couldn't say that a few years ago. You know, everyone's excited for Quest. I know like at least four or five people are buying Quests in my friend group. And like, that's pretty exciting stuff. You know, like you don't, that, that wouldn't, wasn't going to happen a year or two ago. Um, so I think they're, it's getting close. Um, that kind of brought me to a question, but I'll ask it after the round table uh, finishes. But uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get back to you on that. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll go straight back to you, Chris. Um, so um, yeah, I mean, in, it's, from my point of view, there's an interesting quote in your book, Blake, where Mark Zuckerberg is interested in purchasing Oculus at a certain point. Um, they requested $4 billion, um, and they said that's too high. Um, and Mark Zuckerberg said in, in an email that we won't be able to 
invest that much in purchasing your your company but we will possibly be creating some things for your platform in five years or so when we reach 50 to 100 million users and that was sort of telling to me because that's obviously you know we're five years on now and and that right. simply is nowhere Dang, close so another month left they could uh <laughs> that 50 million number yeah yeah um but also, I think it shows, to, to a certain extent, I think it shows a certain enthusiasm for Mark Zuckerberg as well. And he obviously has some enthusiasm for VR. There's no doubt about that. Um, but also, going back to what Steve was saying earlier, um, gaming, I think uh, Palmer Lucky was primarily interested in gaming uh, from, from when he started out. That was how he saw VR making an impact, and it was all to do with gaming. And as things have progressed these past few years, and we've got gaming and then in VR, and now it's sort of progressed onto AR as well, um, the, the social aspects and the more app-based aspects of VR and AR are becoming more apparent uh, to everybody. I think it, it, anybody that, that is following this industry, it's plain to see that this is the way it's going to go. Eventually, we are going to get AR glasses, hopefully. Um, and, and that's really, I suppose, what Facebook are edging more towards now. Um, to go back to the, the original question, is it, you know, I suppose it's not progressed as quickly as anybody anticipated because we were all so excited for this technology. Um, and I think it ju it's just a case of we'll get there eventually. I don't think it's going anywhere. I don't think that people, companies are going to stop producing VR or AR and aiming towards that future that we all want. But um, we just it's not progressing quite so quickly, unfortunately. Um, and Anthony, what, what are your thoughts? Oh, you're muted. 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 <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, reading a lot of those little stories, like you had, there was this one part where there was like seven quick stories and it was like from different developers and, right. and just the excitement of everybody back in those early days, you know, Alchemy Labs and like Cloudhead Games and like, like some Chinese, I mean, uh, it was one of the Japanese developers that, felt like Palmer Lucky is going to be one of the most famous people of of the century or whatever. And and just all that early enthusiasm, somebody cried the first time they tried, you know, the Tuscany demo and all of that. And it seems to me like there's two different people out there. There's there's the people that put VR on and and they experience being inside the world of VR and it, it's almost like I would equate it to somebody in the days of the Atari 2600. They got the Atari 2600. They played a little bit of it. And it wasn't so much what they were actually playing right then, but their mind started racing ahead to like, oh my God, this is going to change everything. And then there's other people that would get the Atari 2600 and they're like, it's a little square moving around. I can't even tell what the hell's going on. There's two different people in this world. And I thought everybody was more like me. I, I got my first ever experience with VR, I never tried anything, not even cardboard or anything. I ordered a vibe, just like a, a shot in the dark. And the very first thing that I tried was the Steam VR setup where these tables are like, and you know, those little guys are moving around. And, and I was looking around at everything, hearing the sounds. And, and I practically started crying. Like seriously, probably a couple of tears did come out of the corner of my eye because I'm like, Oh my God, this it's over. It's over. This is the future. 
And I still believe that, but it's obvious that there's millions of people that they they need to see that 15 years ahead of where we're going. They need to see that now before they're convinced. And, and the stuff that we have now, it just isn't doing it for them, which boggles my mind. But, you know, it's the reality. And Blake, Blake, just a quick reaction to anything we've said, and then we'll go back to Chris. Uh, he's got a question for you as well. <laughs> it's difficult. It's difficult managing five people on this show, honestly. <laughs> go ahead. We, we all want to ask questions. Yeah. Shake <laughs> job. Um, I do need to go in about 10 minutes, but I'd, okay. I'd also be happy to come back next weekend or anytime after you guys have a chance to read the book, maybe later than that. Cause it's a long book, but, uh, but you know, um, I don't know. One of the things for me is that I, I loved so much about early Oculus was that it really was that by gamers for gamers mentality. And it really was being created for this core audience of people who, you know, we were more likely to cry when having this experience, like, oh, my God, this is the thing that we've been waiting for. Or, oh, my God, this is going to help us step into the game. And in a way, the acquisition, as great as it has been, it did recalibrate expectations and start making us think about more of that mainstream audience, more about getting my mom into a VR headset than I think that Oculus would have been thinking about um, at that point. And, you know, Palmer started this out as a gaming centric thing. And it wasn't because he thought, oh, this is only going to be interesting to gamers forever. That was very much in his mind, like the way to get it to my mom 20 years from now is you have to start with this 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 core group that, that needs to have it. Um, and I think that that has been a little bit sad for me to see, it feels like Oculus um, is, is trying to be more of everything to everyone than it is about satisfying um, just that enthusiast gaming crowd. And of course, part of that is just what happens when you sell a company for billions of dollars. Um, but I remember more recently talking to some folks at Facebook, I guess not recently, it was about, it was like a, a little over a year ago. It was about a year ago. And they talked, these were people who had been with Facebook since like the beginning of Facebook. And they made um, a direct comparison between early Facebook, which was incredibly popular with college students. And then they use, then they, from there, they scaled out. Um, they compared that to like Oculus being incredibly popular with gamers and now scaling out. And I felt like, wow, but we still haven't even fulfilled like that gaming audience thing. Like, like I remember how popular Facebook was. I was in college and it was so incredibly popular. As much as I love Oculus and what they had done, I don't feel like we reached that height and fervor and, but you see that they are really trying to move beyond that. Um, and I think Quest is a great example of that, which is, you know, Quest looks cool, but it's certainly meant for more of a mainstream audience. Um, and so I ha have been worrying since those conversations that Facebook um, is sort of oblivious to the current perception of them in the marketplace or that they are leaving a lot of, there's just this untapped potential. And, and you know, I think that's, I think about that a lot too, because I think nowadays, you know, with the democratization of information and content, there's so much that you could be doing out there. It is incredibly important to have a strong base um, of consumers that you're really appealing to, or maybe not even consumers, but just, you know, even if in politics, like having a strong base um, really is important as opposed to what Facebook has historically been, at least since the college days, where it's just like, good enough for everyone but nobody nobody really loves facebook um and i don't know if that's going to work with vr i feel like you really do need this strong devoted base that's going to inspire others to say like well what are those people so interested in 
and want to get in on it. So I don't know. I, I, I would actually like to see it be more gaming focused for now as a means to bring it to that next echelon. Yeah, like you make a good point there, Blake, because only like 1% of, you know, people on who did the Steam hardware survey had a VR headset attached. Like there's still 99% of people who yeah. could potentially want this thing, you know? Um, the thing, like I, I think that we all would agree that where we are today with adoption is lower than we probably would have thought if we had this roundtable um, at the time of the acquisition. But, but where I would have thought that it was mostly going to be bigger would be like, the PC user, the Steam user, like maybe it would be more like 10% or 20%. I was not expecting that this is something that my mom or my brother would really need at this time, but I thought it would be like, oh, you're a gamer. Have you tried this crazy new thing or this experience? And I'm a little bummed that that has not really happened. Yeah, well, I hope it'll get there. It looks like it's gonna slowly get there, hopefully. But yeah, I, I totally hear you on what Oculus is doing. It's a little little sidestepy and it's, it's weird. It's a weird strategy. I don't really get it too much. Um, my, I guess, you know, we can end questions soon, but I just had a really brief question kind of revolving around what we're talking about, where I feel like as much as Facebook did for VR, like it makes me sad reading, you know, that part of the book that some of the things that Mark Zuckerberg would talk about, like none of them really happened. Like, you know, we'd have the killer app, you know, Facebook would have this amazing VR app and, you know, you'd be able to meet your friends and like all these ideas that, I expected, like, when I heard, you know, Facebook is acquiring Oculus, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to be able to see my friends and we're going to, like, walk into, like, you know, just, like, the Oasis, um, like, right. maybe player one. And, like, basically none of that happened. It also kind of ties to, like, the, the 2015 email from um, John Carmack, you know, where he's like, you know, we need someone to make the metaverse here. Like, no one's working on it. What's going on? Uh, so... I, I guess I just wanted to know, what do you think happened to like some of these big ideas? Because when I thought Facebook, I thought, wow, big ideas are going to happen. Big things are happening. And then like in reality, you know, some of the basic software functions take months to get added to Oculus Go or something like it's just it's weird to me. You know, I, I thought with the money you could get something. No, it's a good question. I think that. It's it's really a lot of things happening at the same time, but but perhaps because of what I said earlier um, about Facebook thinking that they know what's best and not letting people make the decisions. I like I don't know something that comes to mind. I, also, because I was talking about the the trajectory of smartphone adoption versus PC adoption. I mean, what was the killer app with the PC? Um, it was used for productivity, but I do think like for in terms of like commercial consumer PC stuff, a lot of people talk about pornography. Um, you know, pornography being like what made the internet take off. And um, I don't know the metrics of that. Maybe that's just anecdotal. But like, um, I would say that like Facebook has done everything they possibly could to minimize pornography and VR. And I think that's a value judgment on their part. I think that they don't want it to be associated with pornography or other things that they um, perceive to not be like pure or, or want associated with Facebook. And so I don't know whether pornography would be the killer app, but I do think that um, Facebook is trying to decide that for the people. I mean, even just a, um, a probably a better, more recent example is like VR chat. Um, you know, that you would think that with Facebook, Facebook's social background, they would have put out the killer social app or at least the one that was predominantly used. But I think that they have 
certain parameters that they want in place and they sort of want to choose for you what that experience should be as opposed to like letting the people decide. Um, and I think that, you know, with VR chat, that's more about like letting people do whatever they want. Um, and I think that that's why there was early results. And then you get into this weird thing where um, like I, I remember people more recently telling me, so this is not even going to be like the first edition of the book, but, but, but executives at Oculus saying that when they would talk about um, decisions that Facebook was making or that they were going to be making, like disappointing the community, Facebook's mentality was like, yeah, but those are, that's only like 300,000 people. That's nothing compared to like 2 billion people. And, you know, they're right. Like 300,000 is nothing compared to a billion, but you're not going to get to the billion if you sort of bite the hand that feeds you or going back to the example with like Facebook taking off in colleges. Like imagine if the company, if Facebook sold to another company in 2005 and that company was like, yeah, this college stuff is cool, but really you're only appealing to like a million people. We need to appeal to a billion, but you wouldn't get to the billion if you just sort of dismiss like your bread and butter at the moment. And so that's, that is sort of my concern um, there. And I'd love to see the company go a little bit back more to its gaming roots and also listen more instead of deciding for us and letting people try to do different things. Perfect. Okay. I'm going to probably steal what, what may be the last question. Um, I said just as much last week as I was being very critical of, of some of the mixed messaging I think Oculus has done of late uh, with regards to platform and, and where they seem to be steering it. Um, you know, you, you get to a billion is great, but you got to get through the million to get there. So um, it's nice to have a little bit of confirmation bias there with, with you. Um, but but for the for the for some rapid fire questions, sort of, um, Ernest Klein wrote the forward, and um, I think it was a very good forward, and it, it gave me a perspective that I didn't necessarily realize played out that way. What was it like uh, having him involved with the project? And then sort of an unrelated, but kind of moving it on, uh, the book comes out Tuesday. Um, we, we know that there's a lot of juicy uh, tidbits in it. Um, in part, one of the things that we saw here this last week was the, the email from uh, Zuckerberg and the e email from John Carmack. We love disseminating on the show uh, the technical stuff that, that, that comes from Carmack or Abrash. Um, are there going to be any more in the book, uh, any more emails like that that kind of just kind of gets into their brain a little bit behind the scenes um, because we absolutely love that. And if not, um, I'm sure you're sitting on a stack of information that didn't make it to the book. Um, what are your plans for maybe getting some of that information to us? Uh, great question. So um, yes, there's a ton of emails and text messages and other archival things in the book. I think that more than any other nonfiction book I've ever read, there's like way more of that. I, maybe I just haven't read the right one. So I don't mean to be taking credit if like, there's some other authors out there known for using a lot of email techniques. But anyway, I'm of the same mindset as you that like, I'd much rather sort of see this from Abrash's eyes and own words than me trying to translate that. Um, so there is a lot of emails and uh, other messages. I will, the other answer to your question is I'm still trying to figure that out the best way to get the information out there. But in most cases, I do want to get it out there. Um, even though the book is 500 pages, there's so much I was unable to include um, just because of length. Um, so I want to make sure to get other stuff out there. And in terms of Ernest Klein doing the forward, it was amazing. I, I'm not like a super emotive person, but I remember when I got the email that he said he would agree to do the forward, I like jumped up and down. Like that was amazing. Um, I do think that it is going to probably help sell books, but for me, it was just like his book. I wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have written my book if not for his book. And I know that 
that was so true for so many of the people that I spoke with at Oculus and Valve and Sony that it felt like just so fitting. So just from like, I, it was just a real honor for me. And I had spoken to him for like an hour by phone and he talked about a lot of things that he did in the forward of just like his own personal experiences, being a geek and why, um, how, how and why he wrote Ready Player One and why Oculus appealed to him so much. So I kind of just asked him if he would mind putting that into the book. And so I'm really happy with how it came out. And it just feels really fitting that he wrote the forward to a book that would not exist if not for his book. Absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah, I, th I think the forward is is fantastic, actually. Um, but we should probably let Blake go uh, this week. But um, honestly, what you said back then, uh, you know, if you'd like to come on again in a couple of weeks or a few sure. weeks um, and discuss the book a little bit further, that would be fantastic. We've got about, I'm just looking down the list, we've got about a million questions that we didn't get to uh, <laughs> here. So um, I wanted to get into console wars very briefly as well, but uh, we'll save that for next time. Yeah, um, I apologize for... Um, anybody watching whose questions I couldn't answer, I I will say that like with both of my books, I feel a great responsibility in telling the story. You know, I I didn't live it. I'm basically like the custodian of other people's stories, so I try to put myself out there as much as possible to answer questions. So you can ask me directly on Twitter at Blake J Harris NYC, and I almost always get back to everyone. It might be a little bit complicated this week, but I promise I will try my best to get to you. And I definitely. We'll come back on the show in the next two or three weeks if you guys want me back. Oh, um, absolutely. So, you know, if you want to save some of these questions or if people want to return, you know, I, I want to make sure that everyone's questions are answered. So I will make sure that that happens either from your show or if it's asked directly of me. Perfect. So what we'll do here, um, we say bye to Blake. We can go to a brief intermission so everyone watching the show doesn't have to jump off or anything. And then uh, the four of us will come back and sort of finish out the, in our, our typical roundtable fashion. Um, so thanks, Blake. Thanks so much for having me on, guys. I hope to be back soon. Thank okay. you so much. Thank you. Thanks. All right, everybody, we are back. Uh, we hope you all enjoyed having uh, Blake on. Uh, I know we certainly enjoyed it, and uh, we wish that we could have gotten into some more of the details. Uh, there's so much information there, and, and I really think this book is going to probably uh, shake up some noise. And, um, you know, I, I imagine there's going to be, like, a lots of Reddit threads and, and, and lots of people uh, uh, kind of picking certain parts. You know, it's, gonna, it's really going to be fuel for the, uh, pun intended, console wars, the VR console wars, because the... the uh, anti-oculus people are going to be picking out parts and and, and kind of saying this proves every every bad feeling we had about facebook and then um the the facebook fans are going to uh kind of do the opposite so um i'm really fascinated by this book and I, I didn't know it was coming so what about you guys did you all even was this book on your radar at all prior to this week not not for me no um, um it, it's weird it came out because i read console wars a long time ago like well i didn't read it i got the audiobook so um i'm a i drive a lot for my work and i so i listen i'm an avid consumer of audiobooks anyway and i listened to console wars a long time ago and i had no idea um that this was coming out which um so it was a nice surprise for me so, uh, Gary, you are our host. I know I had to jump in there as, as producing, but uh, I'll turn it back over to you as our episode 113 host. Yeah, okay. So uh, let's get into some little news. We, we are probably going to be going slightly long uh, this week, but uh, we'll try to be relatively brief with what we've got to talk about. So the first uh, little news story we've got down here is um, a blog post by Nate Mitchell, which um, came out last week um Nate Mitchell of Oculus, of course, um, and he was talking about some big reveals and some surprises uh, over the coming months. Um, 
especially you know a lot of a lot of things are probably going to be coming out in gdc um and he was also further on from that he was talking about this new uh title from turtle rock studios um which will be revealed at gdc um which he described as almost like a invoking zelda-esque kind of vibes uh, from him so that sort of uh, i suppose that's a way to get the hype train moving um anthony let me go over to you first on this I think actually we discussed it very briefly on your VR365 episode that I appeared on as well, this uh, news story when it broke. Um, I didn't know too much about it then, but what do you think of this? Yeah, well, Turtle Rock Studios, apparently like they did Face Your Fears, and they're also doing Face Your Fears 2 for the Oculus Quest. So I guess this other game where he's talking about, you know, it makes him, it gives him that Zelda feel. I guess that must be different than Face Your Fears 2. So I guess they're doing two Oculus Quest games. It's exciting. I mean, at first, I didn't even realize that Turtle Rock Studios, I thought I thought they were still with Valve. Like, I, I didn't realize that they had become independent. And um, But yeah, it's, it's absolutely exciting. I, I think we might read a little bit too much to think that this is actually a Zelda-like game. It more it might just more be the feeling of Zelda, the exploratory feeling. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so um, with, with that in mind, Chris, you know this Zelda esque thing that he's referencing in this, but also some big reveals and surprises for 2019. What do you think of this? I'm really excited because you know there's been not too much going on. Like even at Oculus Connect Five, there were some games announced, uh, like some big hitters, but there wasn't as much as I expected there would be, you know, like I, especially related to quest, there wasn't really any news about like what games would be on quest other than like a few like Moss and maybe super hot, but hopefully we'll, I'm excited to hopefully hear about quest games and quest announcements and maybe games that are coming out new for quest, not just ports too. So like, hopefully that's what some of the big reveals and surprises are. Cause that this launch needs to be great for this product to do well. Yeah, I'd also love some kind of uh, big reveals and surprises in terms of hardware and um, not just Quest, but uh, maybe some, yeah, never know. Uh, Steve, what do you think? Um, you know, not too much. I'm I'm in uh, shaky Oculus territory, I guess, at the moment because uh, I've I've kind of been critical of them the past couple of weeks, and um, you know, I I don't know what they mean by big. You know, big reveal could be um, announcing that Beat Saber is coming to the Quest. Like, in my mind, that's a foregone conclusion. Like, if Beat Saber doesn't come to the Quest, something's wrong. So um, they may see that as a big reveal in the same way Sony did that. Sony kind of, we already had confirmation that Beat Saber was coming to the PlayStation VR. But then later in the year, last year, Sony kind of, ooh, you know, they tried to make a big to-da out of it. And um, to me, it's like, duh, obvious it's coming. So, um I, you know, it, about the Zelda-esque game coming from Turtle Rock Studios, uh, we already have a Zelda-esque game. It's called Vanishing Realms. Um, I want more of that, so so I'm not going to be um, certainly against more content. I mean, I said earlier with Blake that um, I felt the biggest problem for VR adoption right now today is content and that we need more of it and we need more high-quality content. So if if this big news and surprises is in fact um, sort of like an out of nowhere Asgard's Wrath type um, big game announcement, then then I say hell yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
I suppose content is, we always talk about like content being king um, and th th there's a balance, you know, we all want great content, we all want great games to be coming out, but also deep down, I just want new hardware at this point. I want a fantastic headset uh, to come out. Um, so there, I, I suppose that's the discrepancy in that as well. But deep down, I, I suppose really content is going to be king in the long run. Gary, um, you know what? We're wait before you get past that next next part of it is um, <laughs> when he was talking about like getting excited for the things that are coming up. I think part of it too is PAX. Is it PAX East in Boston is going to correlate almost perfectly with the three year anniversary of the Oculus Rift? And one thing I do believe might happen is I think the the Rift S could be a replacement. Like, like it could be the new Rift. Like they're just phasing out the old Rift. Here's the Rift S. That could be the excitement, and it could come at PAX East on the three-year anniversary. That's a possibility, I think. Yeah, who knows? Hope so. That That's a possibility. We'll, we'll uh, stay tuned. This could be – what do you call yourself, Anthony? Nostradamus Jr. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. <laughs> we'll come back to that in a few weeks. Okay, uh, so the next news story is Palmer Lucky, and um, he – we've spoken already. This is, again, you know, Oculus-heavy show, I suppose, uh, this week uh, due to the subject matters that we've had. But Palmer Lucky has mentioned on Twitter how he wants to do some uh, repair kits for the audio problems, the right-side audio problems on the Rift. Which actually we didn't get into this when Blake was on, but um, I suppose you know it's 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 people have had this problem, but I guess it just happens after warranty, so you're kind of out of luck there. Um, but yeah, it's been nice to have him in the community lately. You know, when he was silent, it was the weirdest thing, but it's good to see him again when he did the modded Go. Like that was super cool, working on making the Go such a better product just by you know him working on it, which is hilarious that. It wasn't like that good to begin with. Uh, and then, you know, this continuing to to help consumers in VR, I think, is is great. And I think he's also like a moderator of the Oculus Reddit. So he's around. Um, so I'm just I'm really happy to see that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I think we lost a little bit of uh, my audio there, unfortunately. So I went to type a response in chat and I typically mute myself, but um looks like I muted you and everyone heard my keyboard <laughs> clicking. So that stuff's going to happen. I, I try to be a, a well-knit producer, but um, I make mistakes. I'm only human. It happens. It happens. It's fine. So let me, let me just reiterate. We're talking about uh, Palmer Lucky, talking about the uh, repair kits that he's planning for the Rift, uh, the right side audio problem. Anthony, what do you think of this? I've actually avoided this story because I feel like if I read this story, then I'm going to have that audio problem. So I've just, I've seen the headlines and I'm like, okay, yeah, that's great. I'm going to move along. So I haven't actually looked into it. I do want to say really quick though, thanks to all the super chatters. Like we've got, we got a lot of super chats this episode. Uh, it was happening during the interview and I didn't want to like call that out, but uh, Del Wolfensbogger just gave us a super chat and a bunch of others as well. And so thanks so much for all that. Really appreciate it. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Steve, um, so with regards to this, uh, Palmer Lucky remaining in the VR community and trying to make some kind of contribution, what do you think? 
I think it's awesome. Like, first and foremost, it's it almost seems like he obviously is a very wealthy person and has resources at his disposal and that he's probably a uh, tinkerer uh, of uh, still at heart. So he's using those resources and he made the rift or he was very involved in making the rift. And this is a flaw of the rift. Um, most rift owners have had this problem or are going to have this problem. It is a inherent design flaw. And um, it almost feels like he's 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 putting the right karmic response out there in um and and knowing that this this flaw kind of got through on his watch in, in some capacity and and he's making it right. So I think it's it's absolutely fantastic. Now when I had the problem with my rift, um, you know, I'm not gonna lie to the community. I use whatever minimal leverage I have uh as one of the hosts of this podcast to uh I think influence Oculus in, in fixing my rift outside of warranty. Uh and I know that not everyone is gonna be able to do that. Um so having an option, because you're kind of, if, if the issue happens to you, you're torn between, um, you know, I have to go buy a whole new Oculus kit. Like I'm going to get extra controllers, which isn't a bad thing. Uh, you know, I'm going to have to shell 350 or, or buy one used if, if it happens to your Rift. Um, so whatever this kit Palmer's going to put together, I don't know if he's going to sell it on a marketplace or uh, if he's going to just give it to Oculus so that they can give it away to people that make a warranty claim. But however this gets distributed down to the people, um, I think it's, it's a really good gesture by um, a, a person that's committed to the community. Absolutely. Okay, well, let's get on to Asgard's Wrath, um, a game which I'm pretty excited for. The the, the trailer that came out um, was, you know, it, it was good anyway, but they've released a gameplay snippet of this game since, um, which is really, it shows the difference in terms of gameplay. So Asgard's Wrath is an upcoming Oculus Rift game, and you play as a sort of a warrior on a battlefield of various types, but also you get the option to sort of expand and become like a, a god and almost like a, a larger figure within this battlefield and, and battle other gods um, and also transform animals into warriors and this kind of stuff. There's a lot going on in this. Um, but Asgard's Wrath um, looks absolutely fantastic and I can't wait to give this game a try. Um, so with this gameplay snippet that we had, um, there's not a lot revealed, but it does look pretty good in terms of melee combat we're suffering from all of these things in terms of vr how melee combat is still not quite there in most cases and we every time a trailer comes out like this we want it to fulfill the promise of vr melee combat um so hopefully this game will get a, a step closer to that kind of stuff um chris what did you think of this the trailer looks fantastic right oh my gosh yeah like yeah i showed a lot of my friends this and like it almost looks like Skyrim, but made for VR, you know, like it has some of those same mechanics where you're like smashing crates and collecting money and like just the, the interaction with the, the character and the, like the fake people, like the, the frog in this case, like this is like a companion character. This looks so cool. He's like, frog, go get that key. And then the frog's like, I got it. Here you go. And like, I, I just love those, those social looking interactions at least. Um, so like, I, I, I'm, beyond excited for this game. I don't know what it is about it, but I feel like this is the most exciting game to me. Yeah, um, Anthony, what did you think of this uh, this latest trailer? Yeah, I, I guess I'm kind of the opposite of Chris on this one, just because um, 
Well, I don't know. I mean, you see a trailer, and, and when you see a trailer, you start thinking of this grand idea of, of what the game could possibly be. And then it's like when you get the actual gameplay, it's like, okay, back to reality. It's a dungeon crawler type of a game. They do have the the wet floors down pat, you know. The, the wet floors look so good. And uh, the other thing is, I'm a little bit worried because these guys just came off of Marvel Powers United VR. And one of the things that bothered me about that game were the quips that all the different superheroes would say these little, you know, it was like these one-liners. And so the one-liners would always happen. And, and as long as there's an option to turn that off somewhere, I'm okay with that. And I noticed that in this gameplay trailer, the, the, the redheaded lady that's kind of running around that you're playing, she makes quips as well, very similar to, to Marvel Powers United VR. And it's just the only thing about that is unless they're changing it up constantly, that can get kind of tired pretty quick. But it looks good. It, it looks like another good dungeon crawler. We're probably going to get this around July, summer this year. So it's looking good. It's another primetime exclusive. This um, the, you mentioned dungeon crawler there, and that's that's true. But the early trailers of this didn't make it look like that. Not not really a dungeon crawler, like a a more open area kind of game. And yet this latest gameplay trailer does make it look like that. What do you think, Steve? I think it may be inspired by God of War, um, both because of the god play and the scale and such. And and I don't think I've always said that, um. You know, I, I, I've never harped on gamepad-based VR, and, and I still stand by the position I had in, in, in 2017. I, I have it still in 2019, and that um, in VR with motion controllers standing in your room, um, I can't do the maneuvers that Kratos was able to do in God of War 3. Like, I'll never be able to physically do those maneuvers. So I feel that as immersive as VR can be, I think it's somewhat, somehow also limiting. And um, so this will be interesting. Like, to me, that the first thing that came to mind in title with the whole God aspect was that this feels like it's been inspired in some capacity as, as God of War. And, and I almost wonder, like, what can they do to keep it um, interesting in the sense of, is it just going to be this weird kind of hold your hand up as a shield and just kind of waggle your sword and, and, and take enemies out? Like that is a, that is a major concern that, that I have. And it's, it's, it speaks more to the bigger uh, concern that I have with, with, with a heavy reliance on motion controllers and only motion controllers as a, as a design. Um, until we see someone pull it off correctly. I don't think I've the closest in my mind that's coming to me right now is Vanishing Realms. Um, I, I haven't spent a lot of time with Carnage Chronicles and, and maybe someone does it better, but uh, the, with Asgard's Wrath and with any title, that's, that's just a kind of a recurring concern that I have in, in that a game feeling, um, really hooking you and feeling good with the combat rather than sort of always revealing that, that you're standing in your room waggling your wrist around. Uh, that, that's a hard thing to design around and eliminate. And, and I want, um, I hope that Senzaro here is, is able to get around that. Real quick, Steve, go back into Carnage Chronicles. <laughs> oh, my God. It's like a totally new game. They've killed it. I always had Vanishing Realms ahead of Carnage Chronicles, but now I, I would put Carnage Chronicles ahead of Vanishing Realms. Nordic Trolls, much love, much love. Check it out. It's like a whole new game. All right. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely agree with that. I think, uh, I mean, Vanishing Realms and Carnage Chronicles are both fantastic. Um, but getting the, going back to what Steve was saying about the point of, of melee combat and just getting it to feel right, um, it's still a diff difficult challenge. The best one that's going to do it at this point is still a ways off, you know what I mean? Uh, so, yeah, it's not it's not great. Um, okay, well, let's get on to um, another game that's been revealed by Harmonix, uh, Audica. <laughs> somebody's put down here in the notes probably Gary's game of the year 2019 is he loves these types of games of course I do okay um so I I actually didn't I saw the trailer of it but I didn't I don't know too much about it um Steve why don't you tell us about Audica uh well I was hoping one of you guys would okay. uh, as, as I mentioned I was in Ireland and I was working and I was coordinating with Blake I, I didn't get to spend a ton of time uh I did watch the trailer and it looks like uh first of all I have a lot of of confidence, even though I've never played the uh, Rock Band VR game. In general, I have confidence in harmonics because um, I do like uh, the first two Guitar Heroes way back in the day. Uh, I loved Rock Band when they released it on console, and, and I feel like these dudes get it when it comes to doing music and rhythm-based games. So uh, I have confidence in, in that this title is going to be fun and enjoyable. Uh, it looks... Um, like it may have a little bit of a learning curve like it, it, it might be striking this um sort of middle ground like not as easy um on the surface as say beat saber um but but not you know obviously too overly complicated so um yeah i i'm looking forward to this and and it's great that it releases soon or at least in early access it releases soon so um yeah we'll be talking about this one in a couple of weeks yeah chris um so audica i mean i suppose rhythm games and you you talk about playing a lot of vr games with your friends and that kind of stuff so i suppose this is all welcome news anyway for this type of game yeah it, it looks like a really cool game i love rock band vr like i that was so cool to me that was one of the coolest things that was when palmer lucky was still in the trailer of that game like that's how old that game was uh but harmonics really does understand vr and, and rhythm games i think so this will be pretty neat but I, you know, I think everyone's still gonna go with Beat Saber because it's just more fun to feel yourself slicing blocks than than shooting things. But it's still another cool rhythm game. It's probably gonna be the number two rhythm game. So still, still a good release. Anthony, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, well, I the thing that I think about is harmonics. Think about that company, right? Because they, when the PlayStation VR came out. They made Harmonix Music VR, which is actually surprisingly good. And there's a demo, I believe, on one of the PlayStation demo PlayStation VR demo discs. There's a demo for Harmonix VR, Harmonix Music VR. It's actually pretty good. Then they did Rock Band VR for Oculus, okay? And then this unknown company comes out of the blue to eat their lunch with Beat Saber and just make a ton of money. And you know Harmonix had to be thinking, this is our bag. This is what we do. And this other company came in and, and made all this money. And um, But Autica looks good. Mame fan described it as a cross between Space Pirate Trainer and Beat Saber. And I would add with the addition of Ikaruga. So it's like Space Pirate Trainer, Beat Saber, and Ikaruga. They all had a baby. Because if you see Autica, the, the title of it, there's like a blue and orange. And as you're playing the game, it's like one gun is shooting blue, one gun is shooting orange. And so it's kind of that Ikaruga thing. So it's like the colors, and then it's also shooting to the beat. 
And it's very similar to Space Trainer from the uh, Space Pirate Trainer from the standpoint that you're basically standing in one spot and it's all kind of happening in front of you. Because we just got a release like two days ago, a game called Beat Blaster by Ivanovich Games, the makers of Operation Warcade. And that game actually looks pretty good, but you're moving through a world and you're shooting stuff to the beat. And God, I feel bad for those guys at Ivanovich Games because this game came in and like no one's saying anything about Beat Blaster. Yeah, okay. Well, we've got still got a few things to get through, um, but I think what I'm going to do, because we are going to be running long if we carry on through everything, but um, Steve, I did want to get to this topic that you've got down here very quickly about the uh, the Pimax cable that you've got. Um, yep. Go ahead. So the um, while I was out, uh, I know I keep talking about being out, but you know it's the timeline. Um, Kevin Henderson, the uh, Pimax's head of uh, U.S., really the head of North America, because I think he has Canada and Mexico under his territory, under his jurisdiction. Um, he sent me a cable, um, so it's outside of the official uh, Pimax support process. Um, so he sent the cable, and um, I landed late last night and. I was up at 4 a.m. because of the the um, the time zone change, and uh, I tried it out, and it seems to have resolved my problem. So um, I feel now very confident, even though I've only have uh, maybe 45 minutes or so of playtime, um, that that my my Pimax issue was ultimately down to the cable. Um, in in also talking to him and working with him i've arranged um we 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 have to, to confirm so so this isn't a a hundred percent surety um but but i do believe we will be having him on for a special episode uh on uh probably wednesday evening um kevin henderson and it'll be an opportunity for um us to to um, in a way, grill him, not, not, not in a uh, too aggressive way, I don't think, but, but basically give him an opportunity uh, as, as now also being named the company spokesperson to uh, sort of set the record straight on, on, on some of their communication, uh, the situation with um, the backers in the UK for, you know, for some reason haven't gotten their headsets. I don't know if it's a logistics issue in the UK specifically, uh, because as far as we can see, just about every backer in the US and lots of other places seem to be getting them and I believe pre-order. Uh, buyers or have also gotten theirs um and lastly, uh, next week, next episode, uh, I got the Studio Form Apache strap um, that's available for the Deluxe Audio strap um, for Pimax or Vive, uh, but I also got one for the Odyssey. Um, so I'll be giving those uh, some playtime and uh, be able to review them. So uh, lots of stuff going on and uh, not enough time, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, yeah. So keep uh, an eye out on the channel and our Twitter account uh, at VR. Is it VR Roundtable or VR underscore Roundtable? I don't even know. Um, <laughs> I should know, but I don't. Um, I think it's underscore. <laughs> um, because um, hopefully we will have an extra show on Wednesday where we'll be talking to Kevin Henderson uh, about the Pimax. Um, so one thing I think is probably worth getting into this week is Eden tomorrow. It, I don't know everybody's time constraints. Are we okay to spend 10 minutes on this game? I'm good. Okay, well, let's go go ahead then. So Eden tomorrow is a PSVR game by uh, Soul Picks. It's for $20 or £16. Um, it's a sci-fi game. Uh, I've played around 45 minutes of it so far, um, so I've not spent a huge amount of time with it, but uh, I've, I think I've got the gist of it. Um, who else has played this? 
I've played it too. Okay. So maybe yeah. just me and you, Gary. Yeah, yeah okay. I, I didn't have a chance to get to it. Uh, it looks good, and I want to get to it. I'll probably get to it. Uh, maybe we circle back to it next episode. But um, no, I didn't get to it. Yeah, same with me. <laughs> sure. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. Um. So well, I can go first on this. Um, the game I so. <laughs> The, the first thing I want to say, when it, when it first opens up, so it's a sci-fi game, it's set in space, and you crash land on a planet. Now, you see the first uh, opening title screen of this, and I thought, and I promise, everybody watching this, I promise this is absolutely true. I saw the title screen of this, and I thought, I am going to fade into some kind of pod. There is going to be some kind of pod to start this game off and that happened to be true nine times out of ten i'm wrong about this stuff but that happened to be true this time because it's a sci-fi game and we're used to this a lot in vr um i feel like this game's playing into a few cliches a little bit which is not necessarily a bad thing but you do start this game in a pod you crash land on a planet in the same way that you've done in so many other games uh, in vr um not to hold that against it it's just something to mention i think um the the game itself is relatively from what i've played so far so it's relatively like it's kind of like a, a i suppose a puzzle adventure but the puzzles they're not even puzzles they're sort of tasks i, I suppose they're just things you need to do in order to progress to the next point um but you find yourself on this planet um and anthony i think you mentioned this on the vr365 episode that i appeared on because i i didn't uh, actually play this before then um but but it's like reminiscent in some ways of um robinson the journey and I, I agree with that from from what I've played. Um, you've got this little helper robot that floats around you and you can take control of that robot in a very similar way that you do in Robinson Journey. Um, all good stuff. You know, there's nothing wrong with it from what I've played so far. I just feel like it's a little bit like there's there's not enough game i suppose like you're 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 moving through the these puzzles which are not puzzles they're tasks <laughs> and that's that's all it is so you're moving from one section to the next section and you have to do something which is not taxing it's not it's not difficult and it's it's really not a puzzle um but on the plus side so i suppose that's the, that's the downside of this game on the plus side i think the atmosphere and the vibe of it is actually very good if you're a fan of science fiction especially of course um i think you'll still have some kind of um there is this game offers some kind of value um especially for the price you know it's not a hugely expensive game or anything like that but if you're a fan of sci-fi and you want to be immersed within this world then this offers that kind of thing um and it's it's not bad it's by no means bad at all and i actually quite enjoyed uh, the immersive nature of it but um i just wonder how far it goes and i've not played enough to really really see where it goes anthony have you played any more than that yeah, well, I yeah, I played it again and, and got a bit further because like the first time I played it, there was a demo. And so the demo basically starts off with the beginning of the game. It's it's the first 45 minutes of the game. So actually what you experienced, Gary, you probably could have just played the demo and would have got the same <laughs> thing. I got a little bit past the demo the very first time, and then I went back in and played it again and got got further into it. I believe there's somewhere between four to five hours, maybe even a little bit over five hours total experience here. Now, 
what you were talking to is it's not much of a game because you just don't have a lot of agency. You don't have a gun. In fact, not only that, I mean, not that you need a gun, but, but you don't have like, there's no hand presence. You're using a DualShock 4 controller. There's no moves in this game. And you're kind of, it's kind of a walking simulator really. But, but if you are into sci-fi and I am into sci-fi, I would recommend this to people that have a PlayStation VR and they're into sci-fi. Maybe they liked Robinson, the journey, and it's, it's almost more experienced than game. But, but like if this company soul picks, if they were to say, this is an interactive experience, get it for 1999. Are they going to sell a lot of them? No. You, you kind of have to, I think that's the reason The Invisible Hours wasn't advertised as the first VR movie when it probably really is. And it's because you can't sell that. It's hard to sell that. But if you sell it as a game, people buy games all the time. And so this was sold more as a game, even though it might be more experience. But the thing that I liked about this game, and I'm sure you experienced this, Gary, in, in the part that you were in, there's brief moments in this where it's very cinematic and it's very triple A for brief moments, like the story, the sound, just the everything set combined. I think it's the set pieces at certain yeah. points. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And then also the little robot guy that's floating around with you, he's named Newton, and it's very similar to Higgs in Robinson the Journey. But this robot is very expressive, has a lot of personality. He's like this little robot ball that is flying around, but he has these little hands that are flying around as well. And his little hands are like doing all these, little, you know, they're, they're making all these little movements and very expressive, almost, almost a comedy sidekick, but not really comedy. It's, it's more serious. And then the background story of this, the background story of it kind of seems like you're caught I mean, I don't want to spoil it too much, but it kind of seems like you're caught in some kind of time loop or something and something just keeps repeating. And it reminds me of like some of the Planet of the Apes movies, like the old, old Planet of the Apes movies where they they were in a spaceship going somewhere, but they got caught in some kind of like time thing. And uh, I feel like that's kind of going on in the game. And I want to I want to see it through to the end. But there's also. There's also some boring parts that just aren't that good. And I could easily see somebody getting eaten tomorrow and thinking this thing is crap. But I liked it. I liked yeah. it. Yeah. Well, well, on on one other point, like basically what the way the game works, you get you step through and you move relatively slowly. Um, and also what you were saying, Anthony, about this is a dual shot game. It's not motion controllers, which is really what I was expecting. I set up my motion controllers ready to play this game and it didn't accept them. You have to play with a dual shock. Um, but. The main downside, well, I've spoke about some downsides. I still think it's got a lot of positives to it as well. But the way you go through these little tasks, again, they're not really puzzles, they're just tasks. And the game sort of fades out. You you step up, for example, on one section, you have to walk across a plank um, from one side of uh, a valley like a crevice over to the other side um and the way you do this is the little puzzle or task that you have to do is you're supposed to follow the direction of this robot helper that you have in order to keep your balance while you're crossing the plank now before you get there it says okay cross the plank press x so you press x and then it fades out and then it fades in again and you're in pretty much the same position um 
but now you're in the task scene uh, and you do this little task, you get over to the other side, then it fades out again, fades in and you're back in the game. I don't like that. I think that's immersion breaking for, for a start. I don't like that aspect of it. Um, and this is very reminiscent from, from what I've played so far. This is sort of how the game works, uh, you know, so far. It's, it's well, just it does. Yeah, it does that every once in a while. Like you probably did the little thing where you slid down a mountain and it was like yeah. you were doing a little snowboarding sequence. And I, I admit those are kind of not that good. And it's like almost totally unnecessary, really. But you get further into the game and there actually is a downhill sequence that you're sliding down that is much more involved and it's actually halfway decent. So I don't want to write that completely off, but yeah, it, it has positives and negatives. It's not as gamey as we'd probably like it to be, but I, I mean, I got a little bit further in it and some of the visuals are quite awesome, like Farpoint yeah. quality. Yeah, absolutely. Good. Yeah. I do think the visuals, it's, I mean, it's uh, again, the atmosphere, it goes back to the atmosphere and the immersiveness of this game. I think it really does stand up in those respects. Um, okay. Um, well, that's pretty much all, uh, unless um, anybody wants to talk about anything else this week or we can save it for next week. It's up to you. I think we've had a big show. I we think, have. <laughs> um, it, it's gone long and, and in some ways not long enough um, because I certainly wanted to, to ask Blake uh, a whole, whole lot more. But uh, yeah, I think we're at a, probably a good enough spot to wrap it up. Excellent. Yeah. So um, thank you everyone for joining us in chat during the live show, but also thank you to everyone watching after the fact on YouTube and for downloading the audio version of this podcast as well. Um, again, thank you to the contributors in super chat. That's uh, very much appreciated as well. Um, but I guess that's pretty much it. We'll see you next week for the next episode of VR Roundtable. Bye. Bye.